would you please take your Bibles? God's very holy, very powerful, very living and active word and revelation to us. Turn into them, turn in them to what we know of as Colossians chapter 3. And we will begin today in verse 14. Colossians is such a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his glories. We'll remind ourselves again of those soon as we're now in the midst of this section of commands. And then within that, this section in verses 11 through 17 of God's charge and design for the church and how we are to actively reflect and manifest Christ with our new selves, as verse 10 describes, rather than the old selves that verse 9 says we are to put away. So last few Sundays, God has revealed to us, starting in verse 11, that Christ is a tremendously powerful unifier of believers. That he brings together people that, in an earthly sense, may have very little to do with each other, very little connection. Whether it's nationalities, cultures, social status practices, you name it. And Christ makes people who otherwise would be very tribal, very cliquish, and brings them together. Verse 11 ends with that massive truth. Christ is all. That's what ultimately matters are not the differences in us as humans, but Christ being all and in every one of us that he saves. So just a reminder here again of Jesus' prayer in the garden as he went to the cross, and there were more lines in his prayer than this one but just the longing of the heart of Christ that his death would make every believer, those who believe in me through the word of the apostles, that's all the way down to us 2,000 years later, that all of us would be have a oneness like the Father and the Son in their unity. And then in verses 12 and 13, one long and very packed sentence of Colossians because of the amazing gifts of God in our salvation, all believers are to congregate together in a local community, a church. What ultimately we find out is the very body of Christ spiritually. And we share the rest of our lives together on earth. The whole way intentionally, consistently spurring each other on in our faith. Part of what we're doing even this morning but in so many aspects, the other six days of the week as well. So that the work that God began in each of us at salvation will be ultimately and fully carried out in our sanctification. David Paulison puts it this way in terms of our sanctification and a local church body. The local church is integral to sanctification from all sorts of different directions. Every single fruit of sanctification gets expressed within the context of the church. If you are in Christ, then you are in some intrinsic way wedded to the welfare of others. There is a sense in which I am not perfected until you are perfected. We are not perfected until every single one of us, the children of the living God, is perfected. Which means I have a stake in another person's spiritual struggle as part of my own sanctification. It's not a private endeavor. We are not, according to God, just to function as a church however we might feel like it. 
We're not to look around at the rest of the groups in the world and all the other communities that cluster together in this world and try and be like them in some way. God lays out very specifically, very importantly, and some very difficult things for us to think of each other, care for each other, help each other, interact with each other, and live our lives together. None of these are optional. In essence, as we've noted before, Christ is saying to the fathers, I have come for the ones that you and I have chosen from before the foundation of the world to redeem from sin. I have given all of those that you sent me for my holiness, my righteousness, so they could be reconciled and restored to you. I've set our deep love upon each one. They are my beloveds and I am theirs. And now, Father, let's work to make them one and make their entire nature be more like ours. Verse 13, as we noted last week, is for many of us a particularly difficult facet of sanctification of the Christian life. God seems to emphasize in particularly verse 14 that it's equally important to him that every sin of yours committed against God is forgiven by God. And equally that one that every sin of others committed against you is forgiven by you. What we learn is that us forgiving others is far more about us and God than it is about us and others. Forgiving is one of the hardest but one of the most Christ-like elements of his nature that we can do and imitate. And it's one of the most important things for a body of believers to do. Today, God continues charging us with priorities for his body. It's a long title. The church permeated with two particular things, Christ's love and Christ's peace, will come to dwell in and experience and enjoy this amazing, divine, perfect harmony. Perhaps as you see this or you saw the Thursday email, you said to yourself, huh, another sermon on love. How many am I going to have to endure in my lifetime? When I get it down perfectly and when you get it down perfectly, no more sermons. But until then, as far as we all are still from the perfection of this, let's ask God to use something familiar to continue to teach us new things, to take us even deeper into understanding him and the gospel, and as a result, to make us more loving and more peace-filled individuals and body. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we want to just pray 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 today for this sermon, but also for all times that we open your word. You tell us that all scripture, these very words in front of us in Colossians, have been breathed out by you 
into humans and penned and recorded and preserved. And now are being sent forth this very morning by your spirit for the purposes that you have for each one of us hearing this. So thank you for this revelation. We know it is immensely profitable for us. So please teach us, please reprove us, please correct us through it, and please use it to train us in righteousness that whatever ways we each need, you would address within our hearts and within this congregation. Please use all of this to complete us and make us fully equipped for godliness. We ask this in Christ's name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So verse 14 starts with above all. So we've been in this series where uh, we have been seeing a number of uh, characteristics that we are to put on. And now above all, most importantly, this is the climactic ending. So God could have had Paul begin with this. Like first thing right off the bat is here's love. He chooses instead to have it come as a climactic ending. Ken Hughes calls it the crowning glory of Christian godliness or of Christ-likeness. That this is the number one focus that believers are to have and that churches are to have. It is what our lives are to be most marked by. It's what is the strongest indicator of whether we are in Christ or not. So 1 Corinthians 13 is familiar, and there's going to be a plethora of scriptures, partly to just press home what a dominant theme some of these concepts are throughout God's word, and just reminders for you of that. So 1 Corinthians 13 just teaches us through all of this, whether it's languages, prophecy, knowing mysteries, and intellect, and knowledge, incredible faith, moving mountains, giving everything away, even dying a martyr's death. Anything, no matter how spectacular and impressive it might be in human eyes, if it's not done out of love and with love and in the love of God, it really has no worth at all. The ending of 1 Corinthians 13 then reminds us or calls us that faith, hope, love, abide. They're all so central to our lives and our relationship with God. But the greatest of these is love, so pursue it. We might think much like Jesus had the power when he was here that he could have just healed everyone out of sheer capability. Just philanthropic work. He could have just been a machine lovelessly healing thousands. But instead we see him in love, ministering one by one to each, expressing that care. Perhaps the the tightest or the most succinct charge for us in all the commands of love is found at the three chapters later at the end of 1 Corinthians where just very briefly, it's not a long section on love, but very briefly, kind of taking our minds back to 1 Corinthians 13 and all the characteristics of love. Let all that you do, let your, all the activities of your life, every day of your life, 
Let everything you do be done in love. And then the next verse is tied together. Uh, that faith and love work together. Galatians 5, 6. In Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision or any aspect of the law counts for anything, but only faith working through love. John, the Apostle John, kind of repeats that line, that thought from uh, Paul. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and love one another. Both of the apostles boil down the Christian life to two central elements that are to drive everything else. Our faith in Christ, our, our walking with him, our dependence, our clinging to him, our abiding in him, and our love, our, how deeply we love him, and as a result, then, his love flows through us to others. And even though 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, let me just visually take you to the Apostle John's writings, uh, known as the, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And just note some of these. I'm not going to read all of these, so if we go to the next slide, you're just going to visually see these very quickly. First, from the Gospel of John, the Last Supper, familiar charge to us, three times, three times right after he washed the disciples' feet, Jesus said, love one another, love one another, have love for one another. That's the distinguishing mark that he wanted all of the apostles, all the disciples as they became apostles to have. Then when you look, move over to 1 John, particularly chapters 3 and 4, and if you want to grow in, in the spirit working love into your heart and life, just spend time in 1 John 3 and 4, over and over and over and over. He defines love and says that it's practical it's everyday things like seeing someone in need and not closing your heart against him. Because how does the love of God abide in somebody who closes their heart against somebody, a brother in need? But we are to love in deed and in truth. Going on in 1 John, familiar things. Love each other because that's the very essence. Love is from God. And the end of that line in, at verse 8 is that God is love. Later in chapter 4, verse 12, that that's the the design of God. We're loving each other. God's abidingness in us. His love is being perfected in us. And then later in 1 John 4, and there are many others that I didn't include here as well. Our challenge is not that we know, we don't know we are to love. Our challenge is we're still incredibly self-centered, selfish creatures. We still divvy out or dole out love proportionately to what we want to do. Donald Miller, who's not a writer I would necessarily advocate you reading, but I read Blue Like Jazz 20 years ago because it was the rage in the culture. And there was a lot of difficult things to read, but his critique here of love, I thought it, was, it resounded with me. The problem with Christian culture is we think of love as a commodity. We use it like money. If something is, someone is doing something for us, offering us something, be it gifts, time, popularity, or what have you, we feel they have value and we feel they are worth something to us. And then he says, I could see it, this type of love, so clearly and I could see it in the pages of my life. This is the thing that smelled so rotten all these years. I used love like money. The church used love like money. With love, we withheld affirmation from 
the people who did not agree with us, but we lavishly financed the ones who did. So God is calling us really to a whole different kind of love than we naturally do, in some sense from a phileo, reciprocal, brotherly affection that we have within families and within friendships to this all-encompassing, unconditional, totally sacrificial, steadfast, unchanging love that he has for us, that he wants us to have for each other. This kind of love says ultimately to all other believers, my love for you is not conditioned at all on how you will treat me. I'm going to base my love for you on how much Christ has loved me and how much I know Christ loves you as a fellow believer. And those are the only two things that I need. I will not determine my love or level of love by how you love me. Christ's love has transformed me. And now we can think of all these verses into a far more compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forbearing, forgiving, and loving person than I ever thought possible. And maybe one more thought. I care more about the perfect harmony that believers are to have with each other, that Christ died to provide, than I do about whether you love me well or not. Love turns the tables from a focus on what will this cost me, what do I feel like doing, to looking at Christ, to recognizing that, and to having that be our standard for how we treat other people. In essence, Jesus is simply saying here, love, care for, treat other people the way I am loving, caring for, and treating you. Same concept as forgiveness that we noted last week. Again, here. Ray Ortland puts it this way. Before we knew the love of Christ, we gave away our love to people according to how they performed for us. Or I might add, how they treat us. If they measured up to our expectations, we loved them well. But if they let us down, the relationship cooled. And if they betrayed us, we had no more love for them. Then... The gospel came to us, revealing God's earnest love for us, not only when our performance fell short, but even when we hated him. Now we are learning to recalibrate our relationships with one another in a godlike way. The verse could have ended with to simply put on love, but God adds this additional explanation or line about love and that is I think, critical to tying this all together and uniting it. He finishes the verse with, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, recall earlier, next slide please, recall earlier Colossians 2.2 and Colossians 2.19, which used a slightly different expression, knit together, but has the same idea as what Paul is now circling back to again. In Colossians 2, he longed, he prayed that the church body would be knit together in love so we would experience full assurance of everything Christ has for us as a body. And then in Colossians 2.19, he described us as each clinging to the head, Christ, and then being nourished and being knit together by Christ into this perfect harmony. There's a couple of possibilities here that I don't think are critically important to distinguish between on what God might mean and intend here. It could be 
that the everything refers to the previous verses, particularly verses 12, 13, and 14, and all the other qualities, characteristics that have been described there. If that's the case, then it might, it, God is just saying, love knits compassion and kindness. Love knits kindness and humility. Love knits. So he's just showing that these are not freestanding, separate little things. It isn't that some Christians are strong in certain ones and not in others, but that love has this bonding, unifying glue in all of them. We might just say that love is the common denominator or the common thread that runs through all of these other virtues. Here's several other people's better ways to put it than me. We, uh, David Garland, we cannot truly exhibit compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience without love. And I would add forbearance and forgiveness in there. George Caird, love brings each of the other virtues to perfection. Cared again, love is not simply a further item brought alongside the others. Rather, it is the source from which all those qualities hitherto derive their existence. And then Sam Storm with a pretty similar thought there. The other possibility or the added possibility here is that love is what ultimately binds all kinds of very diverse and different people together into this incredible and otherwise not understandable perfect harmony. That God's love flowing through a group of people creates a unity and a perfect harmony unlike the, what anything else in the world can do. So I think everything here can also mean not just the virtues, but the people or everything in the life of a church. Love binds all of that together. Love must permeate everything that we're doing, which is the emphasis of 1 Corinthians 13. And that perfect harmony is this unity within a group of people who have this supernatural love for each other that just creates a smoothness or a harmony. Example, common one, it's most helpful for me of the ones I've tried to think of, an orchestra where there's so many diverse and different sounding instruments. And if you go to, this is band, but if you go to a middle school concert, sorry for middle schoolers and middle school teachers and middle school parents, but it's one of the most painful experiences you go through in human life. <laughs> there's little perfect harmony happening. They're going to grow toward it. They'll get there eventually, and it's beautiful when you see a number of instruments brought together. And that's part of the point here, is that when there is a common, united music that is drawing us all together, all those instruments together, it creates this beautiful, moving, powerful music. Love is the DNA of every other quality of Christ, manifesting itself in all these varied ways that verses 12 and 13 have described. Now, that really should have gone last Sunday with the message and wrapped up that section, because we're kind of at a transition or a shift or a change here. With the period at the end of verse 14, we wrap up a thought, and really it's a thought that goes all the way back to 3-5. Did 
Take your eyes there with me, if you would. We have seen the, the verb put, the command put, six times. It started in verse 5, put to death what's earthly in you. It resurfaced in verse 8, put away these sins from your life. It culminated that part, the, the putting off of the bad, in verse 9 with put off the old self. And then it switched and transitioned in verse 10 and now has three positive things. Put on the new self, put on all these qualities of Christ, and it culminates now, that was in verse 12, and then in verse 14, culminates with the most important of them all, to put on love. So that, through those first three, we are looking less and less and less and less like our old self, the sinful self, the self that would wreck this church. And we are growing ever more in verses 10 through 14 as we put on and become ever more like the image, as verse 10 refers to it, of Christ, our Creator. The other transition here we might note is that we're heading into a cluster of three verses at the end of this church section that all emphasize a particular aspect of Christ that he wants to be central in every church body. After only a few mentions of Christ, really just verse 11, between verse 5 at the end of verse 4, when we see Christ's name, all the way down to verse 15, there's really just been that brief little reference to him directly by name. But now in these next three verses, verse 15, the peace of Christ, verse 16, the word of Christ, and verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus, are all going to be brought to the forefront. Christ is going to be preeminently uh, displayed and emphasized here. But the other kind of unique thing is that all three of these verses end with the same theme or emphasis, thanksgiving. And note the, the, the growing development of this thought. Verse 15, just terse, be thankful. Verse 16 starts unpacking that, a thankfulness that goes to God and it's from your heart. And then verse 17 really captures it all. It's going to God the Father, but it's through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through his intercession on our behalf, his mediating with the Father. So hopefully that's helpful. It's going to take us uh, more than one or two weeks to get through these three. Uh, warning, fair warning, but come anyway, and we'll work our way through. Verse 15 is the first of these three that we'll just begin to touch on today. The peace of Christ is the first of these three elements of Christ that are brought forward. Might be helpful here to very quickly just note there are several, three I think particularly, manifestations or expressions or meanings of the peace of Christ. One is the largest in our salvation, the eternal, unbreakable, uh, immovable, unchanging peace that is established between us and God through Christ, through our faith in him. We've seen it once in Colossians. That's the first reference there, that Christ died to make peace by the blood of the cross. And then very quickly, God is referred to as a God of peace. Christ is referred to as the Prince of Peace. 
The gospel of peace is one description of the gospel as well. And then Romans 5.1 captures this maybe as eloquent as any. We, if we've been justified by faith, we have this phenomenal eternal peace with God that will never go away, never change, never alter. We, an incredible, sweet, precious, beautiful blessing to us. The second facet or expression or meaning of peace we can see in a number of verses, but it's, it's more the peace that comes in the midst of everyday troubles of this life. So, so many prayers in the Bible that pray for peace, whether you're looking in the Psalms or looking throughout hundreds of references to peace. Um, we speak of it every time we pronounce the Lord's blessing from number six. The Lord lift his face upon you and grant you peace. So many benedictions of the New Testament letters include it. One of the most common, grace and peace be with you. Uh, or 2 Thessalonians 3.16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And it's just a reminder here that far too many followers of Christ, with this incredible peace of Christ offered to them, aren't experiencing it. Their peace fluctuates. Their peace often gets smothered out by other things, other competitors. And as Jesus warned his own disciples in John 14 when he was going to the cross, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. Both of those are because there's a peace that Christ gives that overpasses, overcomes, overrules all of those. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 may be the first one that popped into your mind. But our prayer life and taking everything is to mean that we have anxiety about nothing, incredibly challenging, anxiety about nothing, and a peace of God that surpasses understanding, actually guarding, what a word picture, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. More verses that go on to describe that for sake of time that I'm just going to bypass at this point. And take us toward the latter part of this verse as well. There is a third element or meaning or facet expression of peace. And that's where we move from it being individual to where we move to it being relational. And with people and with others. And I think that's the sense here because of the second half of verse 15 or the middle portion of it. That God called us to peace in one body. That that's a dominating factor he wants to characterize his church and his people. Are that they are at peace with him and they are at peace with each other. Ephesians 2 describes this most of all. Particularly at this time when Paul was writing this. That the Jews and the Gentiles needed to have complete and total peace. They were not sitting on two different sides of the sanctuary. Uh, or the synagogue, or the temple, or the area, that they were united, that they were fully there, that they were not seeing those differences. Back up to what verse 11 was talking about. But so many other verses. Again, this is just a visual thing. All of these will be in the email. But if you just glance quickly at this next slide, it was the peace announcement in Luke 2.14, that it would be peace among those whom he is, with whom he is pleased. The command of 1 Thessalonians 5, be at peace among yourselves as a whole church body. Pursue what makes for peace. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Strive for peace. 
And you see all these commands of Scripture that show what an important thing it is to God for a church body to have. And just reminders also from the Beatitudes of Jesus pronouncing a blessing on uh, those who are peacemakers. It's a far more important thing to God than most of us realize and most of us care enough or have moved to be our own priority. The final thing in verse 15 is three simple words that can easily be unnoticed and be thankful. The more thankful we are, and we're going to see this unfold in all of the, these next three verses, we're just touching on it today. The more thankful we are to God for all that we have been given in Christ, the more compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forbearing, forgiving, loving, and peaceful people we will be. There is a direct correlation between how grateful we are and how holy we become, or how much like Christ we become. The shallower understanding of God's love and of Christ's peace, the shallower our gratitude will be, and the shallower our spiritual lives will be as a result. So in closing, let's reflect on how are we, and we'll keep it plural, but obviously you're thinking of yourself in this as well. How are we doing in the characteristics of verses 14 and 15 on a week-in and week-out basis? Are we as clothed in the love of Christ toward each other as God wants us to be? Are we as in perfect of harmony with each other, bound together with the love of Christ as he intends? How strongly is Christ's peace ruling your own heart, and as a result, this whole body. And how thankful of a people are we? Does our gratitude come from our hearts? Does it come out our mouths? Is it in our prayers, in our songs, and in all the ways that we interact with each other? I want to just urge you, again, no different. How do I grow in this answer than any of the past eight or nine sermons? Look more deeply into Christ in the gospel. Whether that's through scripture, singing, conversations with people, keep studying the love of God, the peace of God, and allow those things, when we see them, pause over those, ponder them. Did you notice how many times we sang about love this morning in our songs? Resing those, meditate on them, thank God for them, and then pray that they'll be manifested more in your own life. And pray, would you, that in this body, this precious church that God has formed here, we would all be bound together. All. Not the great majority, not just the members. All bound together in perfect harmony for the glory of God. Lord, we thank you again for Colossians. Every line of it has been precious and powerful and important. And we want to again just beg of you now
to continue the work that's been begun as we've looked at these verses this morning. And that they will just keep working and keep driving down deeper into our hearts, keep cutting open areas where we are self-centered, where we're not peaceful people, and transform and change us as we behold more of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we degree by degree by degree be transformed more to look and act and live like Jesus. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.